We are a church, like I've been saying, that is organized around this idea of practicing the way of Jesus. It's something that we go on at length about, meaning we aren't terribly interested in simply hosting an event on a Sunday evening. We want to actually be with Jesus. We want to actually experience genuine intimacy and connectedness and communication with Jesus. And we believe that we get to do that through His Spirit. And we also want to become like Jesus by pouring over his words and studying his teachings and his actions and his lifestyle. We will learn how to adopt his way of life for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, and for our entire church. And then, after all that, we want to actually do the things that Jesus did. It sounds terribly daunting from the outset to actually do things like preach the gospel and eat and drink with people far from God and to prophesy and to heal the sick and to do spiritual warfare and confront evil and injustice. But we think that if we do live in intimacy with Jesus, if we are becoming more like him all the time by learning his teachings and putting them into practice step by step, trial and error, well, doing what he did begins to sound less and less far-fetched. So every few months, we take on a new spiritual discipline from the life of Jesus, a new principle of emotional health and maturity. And we talk about it here for a few Sunday evenings, and then we gather in smaller groups that we call Van City Communities, and we actually go for it. We have support and accountability and space to try things and mess up and try again, and we actually give it a shot together. Last week, we began the complicated, challenging, yet beautiful practice of forgiveness. Now, we've already unpacked a sort of broad paradigm for what forgiveness is and what it is not. So if you weren't here, please go back and listen to the podcast. It'll really help you along the way if you're doing the practices. For tonight, let's carry on with the next chapter in the forgiveness saga. You guys ready to get to work? (laughs) Someone besides you, Cameron. But I heard other people, so we'll take it. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to do a bit of Bible from the outset here, so keep the book open in your lap or your phone or whatever as we go. A few years ago, I uh, navigated a terrible fallout of a close friendship. It was complicated, it was painful, it was terrifically messy, and after weeks and then months of arduous turmoil, I found myself in a room with a once close friend, and this trusted pastoral figure sat between the two of us as kind of a mediator. And he said this, you don't have to work everything out. You don't have to see eye to eye. In fact, you don't even have to reconcile this friendship. But as disciples of Jesus, you must release one another in forgiveness. And in that moment, it was as if I was suddenly made to confront the awful likelihood that this relationship would not recover, that this could be it, at least for this season. And I could see two paths set before me. I could very easily, especially by my own wiring and design, I could let the twisting vine of resentment coil around my innermost being. After all, I felt that I had been wronged. I felt that there was no resolution yet. I felt that there had been no justice and no repentance. Or I could release this person from my perceived debt, whether they ever acknowledge that debt or not. And then releasing would be the more difficult decision to me in that moment. It felt unnatural, it felt unsatisfying, it was not the closure that I had been seeking. Everything in me seemed to be oriented in the other direction. And yet I knew as a disciple of Jesus 
that I was being invited down the other path, not because it was easier and not because the path of uh, forgiveness would be the up and up version that everything would be reconciled because of it, but because the path of resentment would destroy me. And I knew this because I have seen that path swallow many other people alive. So with that in mind, let's look at Matthew 18 and read beginning with verse 21. The story goes, then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Um, And that seems like a strangely specific thing to ask, like why seven in particular? Is Peter just like got it in his head that that's a good number? Um, But remember, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi, which is just a word that means teacher. And of course, Jesus was not the only teacher in the first century, nor in his immediate vicinity. There were many rabbis, many unique teachings from each of them on the Torah, or the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. And one teaching that was popular amongst Jewish rabbis in the first century was that forgiveness should be extended to an offender up to seven times. But at that point, the offended party is no longer obligated to go on forgiving. So Peter is essentially asking Jesus, it's not random, he's saying, hey, where do you stand on the widely accepted notion of forgiving up to seven times? Let's see what Jesus says. Verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Some of your Bibles say 70 times seven times. And listen, because Jesus isn't suggesting that his disciples are obligated to 490 bouts of forgiveness and not one more than that. Um, he's using a sort of hyperbolic turn of the number in question to say what seems obvious. There's actually no limit to the amount of times you should forgive someone who sins against you. It's a bit like the way my wife, Abby, uses the same exact hyperbolic figure, which is 500,000, to describe any indefinite amount or just any like unpleasant amount. So she'll say, that'll take 500,000 years. And uh, ever the literalist and butthead, I'll say, well, then we have a real problem because I can't, I can't even possibly live a fraction of that time. And then she uh, rightly replies, exactly. <laughs> So that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, not seven times, 500,000 times. It's just a way of saying it never ends. And then things get really interesting because Jesus is the most brilliant teacher to ever walk the earth. He's constantly anticipating pushback to his radical teachings, and then he answers them with stories. So he, think about it. You, you, you're a young pupil. You've been taught to forgive someone who sins against you up to seven times. It's kind of part and parcel of what it means to be a young Jewish man around Jewish rabbis. You ask your teacher, your specific rabbi, about that number, about that popular teaching, and he says, more than just, you know what, make it eight which would be an increase. He says more than just double it, which would sound pretty intense. He says, go on forgiving indefinitely. And you're like, that's a lot more than seven. And before Jesus' disciples can rebut with like, man, good grief, that's a lot more. Jesus starts telling a story, which is this weird thing he does all the time. Look at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, if you're, if you're looking to adjust this figure to today's monetary terms, some scholars argue that it might be about a trillion dollars. So, uh, in other words, it's a lot. The idea is that you can't possibly pay that back. Verse 25, since he was not able to pay... The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. 
The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Now, this is interesting because the sum is so different. In Greek, it's 10,000 talents, which uh, adds up to about three months' pay for a day laborer. That, that to say, it's a lot of money for sure, but it actually can be repaid, unlike the trillion dollars previously. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This, Jesus says, is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister, and listen to this, from your heart. Now that uh, final distinction is an important one, and we'll talk about it a good bit tonight. For Jesus, it isn't enough to simply cancel a debt. His disciples are commanded to also forgive those who sin against us from our hearts, in his words. Earlier this evening, I mentioned that to, uh, to practice the way of Jesus often seems too tall in order from the outset. His standards seem outrageously high. But one beautiful aspect of this way of life is that we follow Jesus in a way of life, meaning we only go where he has gone before us. So turn over two books to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23. How are you guys doing? Still awake? Yeah. Great. Okay. So enthusiastic over there. Can you do this every week? No. <laughs> Just this time? All right, I'll take it. It's fine with me. Luke 23, let's read beginning with verse 32. This is part of the story of the execution of Jesus. It says, verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him, Jesus, to be executed. Now, if you know the story of Jesus' life, you can certainly argue that he was a troublemaker. That much is for sure. He was a provocateur, absolutely. His ideas and his way of life were both terribly subversive. But was Jesus a criminal in the formal sense? No, right. A horrible injustice is actually taking place in this story. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the Skull, easily the coolest name for a place, <laughs> They crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Who is the them to whom Jesus refers here? Look at the line that immediately follows that. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. So they, the people over whom Jesus pronounces forgiveness, are his executioners. And I look at what immediately follows Jesus' distribution of forgiveness, and it seems incredible to me. The men in the story are sort of divvying up his clothes. A man who, several feet away, is dying a slow, painful death. They aren't sorry. They are not compelled by what's happening around them. They aren't broken. They are not repentant. And Jesus forgives them. If anyone and all of the known universe is well-versed in what it means to forgive, it would be Jesus of Nazareth. 
And he does this for you and I as well. In fact, in the story, it's this profound theological thing where Jesus takes on the sin of the entire world, more than just the callous cruelty of his executioner, but everyone. Jesus knows what it means to forgive. And we, his disciples, thus follow in his footsteps by learning to do the exact same thing. Turn over one more time to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, just a few books to the right. For the sake of context, Ephesians is a letter actually written to and delivered to a first century audience in a church, uh, a church in a city called Ephesus, uh, early apprentices of Jesus. And from, for what we now call the first three chapters of the letter, Paul, who's this master apprentice of Jesus, goes on and on at length about what Jesus has done for these new disciples. And then in chapter four, he uses all that, all this stuff that Jesus has done for them to detail how Jesus' disciples are to respond to everything God has done. Look down at the end of Ephesians chapter four, beginning with verse 30. Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as the Messiah God forgave you. Bitterness, rage, anger, slander, every form of malice or read unforgiveness, Paul says, get rid of it. When you walk in the ways of unforgiveness, you, in Paul's language, grieve the Holy Spirit. Meaning, for those of you who follow Jesus, you actually have God's Spirit alive in you, which is this tremendously complicated thing to try to wrap your head around. But think of it like this. When you harbor bitterness and malice in you, when you refuse to forgive, you agonize the part of you that is infused with God. Because God readily forgives. And what's more, you actually set a wedge between yourself and God, just as you set a wedge between yourself and other people. And of course, Paul goes on to remind us why this is so important. Look down once more at the next few verses, beginning in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writes, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, uh, before we carry on, let's approach this idea from a bit of a bird's eye view, as it were. Last week, we used our friend Dr. Gary Brashear's definition of forgiveness of, as our working paradigm for this practice. He calls forgiveness the personal act of releasing someone who has sinned against me from my right to pay them back for their offense. And then he goes on to elaborate with this. Instead of reciprocating the pain I have been given, I absorb the pain into myself with God's help. And this elaboration is an important one. There are two levels to this paradigm of forgiveness. Level one is the release. There is a moral debt, and you simply relinquish your right to collect on it. You release the debtor, as it were. And this has to do with the one who has offended you. They have now been forgiven. But there's a second level as well, and it's just important. After releasing the offender, you do not go on carrying that offense. You can be empowered by God to absorb it that it may haunt you no longer. And if you remember last week, that doesn't mean that you forget because you can't make your mind erase memories, but it does mean that you give up the haunting weight 
of that offense over your, life, over your life. And God can enable you to do just that. Now, the second part of forgiving is about you. The first part's about them. There is a debt and you relinquish them. They've been forgiven. The second part is about you. You are, in the words of Jesus, forgiving them from your heart. And that's more than just canceling a debt. One level is about the past. The second level is about the future. Now, um, as we were as a team kind of working out these practices together, we saw that there are at least four dimensions to what it means to forgive. The first is the obvious one, forgiving those who hurt you. This is the friend who betrayed you, the person in your community who said like an unkind thing, the father who left you, the spouse who cheated, and on down the list it goes. And this is perhaps the most obvious dimension of what it means to forgive. It isn't the only dimension of what it means to forgive. There's also the work of forgiving ourselves for our foolish decisions, our moments of weakness, our wasted time. But then I think we can go even more existential with this thing, bear with me. Uh, Something I find myself saying to a great many people in a great many ways, including myself, when we sit down to confront tragedy in life, trauma in life, the woes of life, as it were, is that I'll find myself saying, yes, that is awful. And yet, there it is. Now, we don't believe at Van City, we do not believe that everything happens for a reason. We do not believe that everything that happens is planned or ordained or controlled by God. Yes, God is active, He is involved, He is close. And yet, we believe that life is often chaotic. Life is often cruel and even random. And though God absolutely brings good out of evil that he doesn't plan or ordain, sometimes horrible things happen and there is no grand design other than the entropy of a broken, fallen world. And we can forgive life itself for its injustice or we can allow it to consume us. And it sounds a bit silly, I realize that, but how many people have you known that have become bogged in the mire of life's injustice and they struggle and they kick and they spit against it because they can't move on. They say, this happened to me and this happened to me and it just isn't fair. And the reality is, no, it isn't. And there it is. So I think that forgiving life itself, the chaotic nature of the universe for being unfair is part of what it means to absorb wrong done to us without letting it um, destroy us. And finally, please bear with me, this last one's a complicated one. Sometimes I realize we become embittered with God himself, either consciously or subconsciously, because he isn't governing the universe or overseeing our lives the way we believe he should. And frankly, if I'm completely honest, I'm convinced most of this is either entitlement or laziness, uh, almost all of it is at least horrific theology, if not all of those things. To be clear, God has not dropped the ball. He has never, he will never wrong you. That's absolutely true. But all of that is neither here nor there if we become consumed with unforgiveness toward God himself. Now, I want you to think back to the story I told earlier this evening of falling out between two friends. Things were ambiguous, yes, but one thing in that story was absolutely clear. There were two very different accounts of one very specific situation. And both parties understood themselves as innocent and the other party as guilty. I'm sure you guys can recall a similar situation in your own life. Now, it could not possibly be true that we were both right and the other and both wrong at the same time. Um, by nature of the conflict, one version of the story was true and the other was untrue, and that's just the way that it was. One person was innocent and the other person was absolutely guilty. 
Um, and yet, we were both called to release one another in forgiveness, though it meant that someone was forgiving a person who had actually not sinned against them. Now, God, in the same sense, has not wronged us. He will never wrong us. And yet, if we learn that we have either knowingly or unknowingly nursed a grudge against God, we ironically drift away from the one singular source of healing and contentment available to us. Do you see how that happens? A person, for example, might experience tragedy in their life, uh, estrangement from a spouse, the death of a loved one, and maybe they don't rage against God, maybe they don't, you know, have a deconversion experience, they don't become an agnostic, they simply nurture a small, dark root of bitterness, and they begin to ask normal, healthy questions like, where was God, and what does this mean, and, and, and why did this happen? Those are all healthy, those are all reasonable questions to ask, but Often, they don't actually address those questions in a healthy way or work through them in a healthy way or take those questions to God himself, the one with whom they take issue, and it grows and it proliferates. And a year later, they find themselves estranged from God. Now they can't hear God's voice, all because of a lack of forgiveness and bitterness has grown inside them, whether that offense was authentic or not. And I was talking to Cameron just before the teaching, and he mentioned that he cringes at this language of forgiving God, and I do too. But listen, the focus here is on what the New Testament calls a bitter root, and it can grow up to, in the language of the New Testament, defile many. And I think that this is often most true when it has to do with our becoming embittered with God himself. So this practice is about learning the ways of forgiving in all four dimensions, our, uh, with other people, with ourselves, with life, and even with God. And here's the thing, every new practice that we've embarked on as a church, we hear at least one or two stories about someone in some community who would like to opt out because they don't think a given spiritual discipline or whatever applies to them personally. But in the ways of forgiveness, we're all very clearly in the same boat. <laughs> Because we have all been hurt by someone, and we will be hurt by someone else again and again. And maybe you think your trauma is more or less significant than someone else's, but it's all trauma. We've all suffered some injustice. We've all been insulted or hurt, injured, rejected. We've all been taken for granted. And we have ways of dealing with it. We make jokes, or, or we get sarcastic, or we project onto other people, or we recede into ourselves, or we get quiet, or we refuse to grow up, or we hurt back. The quest to avoid pain is a fool's errand, because pain is coming. <laughs> pain will find you, and it will find you again. No, ours, as disciples of Jesus, is a quest to confront pain and to do it well. And when the source of your pain is actually another human being or even a loved one or even yourself or life itself, what do you do with that? Last week we talked about how seriously Jesus and the authors of Scripture take this idea of forgiveness. There seems to be such a great deal at stake. And I want you to understand like this. Think of yourself as a conduit. You have in you the potential to receive outside stimuli and to then channel it back out into something else, for better or for worse. But listen, this is a possibility, not an inevitability, meaning you can take what you get and give it back, but you don't have to. You can also take the pain of being wronged and you can absorb it and transform it. But what you do not transform, you will transmit 
back out. Here's a, a funny thing to admit, don't judge me, but I've read quite a few books about those who uh, commit violent or bizarre or aberrant crimes. And of course, now a tremendous amount of research has been done over the years to understand what makes a human being capable of doing truly evil things. And now we know statistically that the vast majority of, say, abusers or murderers were themselves victims of abuse and violence, in, particularly, uh, in particular as children. But, and listen to this, Many more people than those we know to be abusers and murderers have also been victims of violence and abuse, and they do not go on to become abusers or killers or criminals. So there's this saying that we have, and it's catchy, hurt people hurt people. And sometimes that's very much true, but sometimes it just isn't. Sometimes the saying might be the much less catchy, hurt people do not hurt people. Um, we talked about this quite a bit back in the Sermon on the Mount in our discussions around nonviolence. See, at the heart of what it means to quench violence is the idea of what Leo Tolstoy called breaking the chain of evil. You see, humanity tends to operate in an ongoing cycle of tit for tat. The idea is you hurt me, I hurt you. You gossip about me, I'll drag your name through the dirt. You offend me, I'll freeze you out. You reject me, I won't invite you to my thing. And things just keep amping up. You disagree with my political party, I'll slander yours online. You threaten us with bomb, bombs, we threaten you with nukes. You kill our guys, we drone strike your guys. And on and on it goes. The never-ending pettiness, the infantile game of they hit me first. And relationships, lives, and entire civilizations are strewn about dead as evidence of our unwillingness to embody a better way as human beings. So Jesus proposes this radical, subversive, counterintuitive, self-sacrificial method to bring the madness to an end. Just as he taught his disciples physical nonviolence, if someone hits you, don't fight back, turn to them the other cheek as well. Now he teaches us nonviolence of the heart. If someone hurts you, Forgive them. Refuse to be a conduit of that pain. Do not transmit that hurt back out into the world. Instead, allow it to end with you. Transform it into something else, something good even. Ronald Rollheiser writes this, any pain or tension that we do not transform, we will retransmit. In the face of jealousy, anger, bitterness, and hatred, we must be like water purifiers, holding the poisons and toxins inside of us and giving back only the pure water. Rather than being like electrical cords that simply pass on the energy that flows through them, the natural instinctual temptation in the face of jealousy, anger, bitterness, and hatred is to give back in kind. You hate me, so I will hate you, but we are invited to something higher. Again, Imagine yourself as a potential conduit. Hurt comes in and something has to happen. That's just the way we're wired as human beings. It doesn't dissipate of its own accord. It doesn't just disappear altogether. Hate or anger or frustration, jealousy comes in. Something has to happen. The easy route is to transmit that hurt right back out. It's fast. It's efficient. It comes quite naturally, frankly, for some more than others. But the problem is that the hurt keeps on going. As disciples of Jesus, our prayer is to see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven, meaning we want things to be the way God wants them to be, and God wants a world where there is no hurt. So option two is to absorb and transform that hurt. It's more difficult, it's counterintuitive, it's unnatural, but it's also more beautiful, and it is the way of Jesus. 
So what does this look like in a practical sense? One person is abused, and so they abuse. Another person is abused, and so they spend much of their lives seeking out ways to prevent abuse and to counsel victims and to create awareness. One person is traumatized, and they stop growing. They stop maturing. They become a shell with the emotional intelligence of a child. Another person is traumatized in the exact same way, and they mature as a result. They gain a closeness to God that people with more tidy stories can scarcely understand. One person is not shown kindness and affection by their father, and they repeat that pattern with their own children. Another person with the same story embraces that past, rises above it, and becomes a shining example of what it means to be a fully present and emotionally available dad because they know the cost. All of us are given a choice when we are hurt, but followers of Jesus are actually commanded by our teacher, our rabbi, our Lord, forgive as you have been forgiven. Before we end tonight, uh, we need to admit something to one another, and that is, this is really hard, really, really hard to do. It's sometimes, <laughs> maybe this is just me and you guys are less petty than I am, it's sometimes hard to forgive just an unkind word or an, you know, a, a friendship oversight, let alone an absentee parent or an abuser or much worse than that. So if this has been hard for you, if you started the practices this last week and you're like, man, this is already tough, then don't, don't worry about it. That's okay. If you're not out of the woods yet, if you realize this is going to be hard work, that's okay. Don't give up. It's not too late. That You can do this. By the empowering of God's Spirit, you can do this. And listen, it seems evident from experience, and I want you guys to hear me on this, uh, it seems evident from experience and from philosophy that this will become more difficult, not less, the older we get. Um, some theologians argue, and I tend to agree with them, that libertarian freedom becomes compatibilist freedom over time. That's just a wordy way of saying that on the timeline of your life, early on, you have the free will to always choose other than you do. But the more choices that you make, for better or for worse, the more you become solidified in those choices and those lifestyle decisions, and the more narrow your spectrum of freedom actually becomes. So the older you get, the harder it becomes to do other than you do. Again, this from Rollheiser. As we age, we can begin to trim down our spiritual vocabulary and eventually we can get it down to three words. Forgive, forgive, forgive. The major task, psychological and spiritual, for the second half of our lives is to forgive. We need to forgive those who have hurt us, forgive ourselves for our own failings, forgive life for not being fully fair, and forgive God for seemingly being so indifferent to our wounds. We need to do that before we die because ultimately there is only one moral imperative, not to die an angry, bitter person, but to die with a warm heart. Now think for a moment about the elderly people that you've known. Doesn't it seem many of them fit neatly into one of two categories. They're either bitter at a moment's notice, petty, cantankerous, mean-spirited, up in arms about the same small, trivial things, or they're warm and kind and generous and gentle because we are being solidified in the decisions that we make. 
So this practice is about evaluating the areas, the moments, the seasons in your life in which you have been hurt and to then treat them one by one with forgiveness. To look at the story of your life, to evaluate the wrong that's been done to you, even the perceived wrong that's been done to you, and then to deliberately choose the narrow road of Jesus. This week, when you meet with your community, you'll head to practicingtheway.org and begin to move beyond level one, which was this idea of releasing an offender, and into level two, which is absorbing the wrong that has been done to you. This actually can be a a really fun, exciting, and interesting conversation. You'll do some, have some conversation, do some listening prayer, and just brainstorm a bit together. Remember, this is a process, so don't be intimidated. Don't think that you have to come away with it. Um, fully mastering the art of forgiveness, but we are asking you and inviting you to just give it a shot together. Begin to brainstorm ways to transform the wrong that's been done to you into good for the world rather than transmitting the hurt back out. Because forgiveness, like all of the way of Jesus, is actually a community activity, a communal practice. And that's a good thing. Uh, man, it's, it's a freeing thing for us because it means that you don't have to do this by yourself. You get to carry one another's burdens. You get to hear from one another and be heard by one another. And you can do this with close friends that you've known for years and you can do it with a stranger that you've just met because you have everything in common with, uh, through Jesus of Nazareth. When you sit down together and say, I want to follow Jesus, I do too, How do we do this together? Doing the difficult, ongoing work of forgiveness can be a challenge, for sure. But you do not have to walk that narrow road alone. So let's go together practicing the way of Jesus.